From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. On the line with us is former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, Valerie Jarrett, whose book, I understand, has just made the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm grateful to all my readers. It's called Finding My Voice. And actually, you probably don't remember, but uh, we met back in 2015 when you brought a group of reporters to the White House to uh, push health care. And I got my first look at the Oval Office, and I got to sit and interview the president for five minutes, which leads me to my first question. Uh, I, of course, was in awe walking into the Oval Office for the first time. There must have been that moment for you, too, when you got there and you asked yourself, uh, am I ready for this? So tell me what that was like. Well, I do remember the first time I walked into the Oval Office, my uh, second day of work, and I couldn't. I couldn't focus. I just kept looking around, and I was thinking, what is this girl from the south side of Chicago doing here? And I remember focusing on the ceiling, which is beautiful. I'd never seen photographs of the ceiling before. And it was a pinch-me moment. And I will say, I knew that for the next eight years, hopefully, I wasn't sure at that point if it would be four or eight, but I knew I was going to just do my utmost best to serve our country and give President Obama the best advice I could. It's different than visiting when you're actually in charge of the place. Do you ever ask yourself, do I deserve to be here? Do I have oh, what it takes yeah. to... Yeah. Of course. I think everybody has self-doubt. It's You're working for the President of the United States, the leader of the free world. The good news is I had known him for a very long time by then. I've now known both the Obamas for 28 years, and so in a sense we came of age together. Uh, but still, he's the President of the United States, and I, I do think that the years I spent in local government really helped prepare me between that and running a real estate company. I'd seen the private sector and I'd seen the public sector on the ground where your constituents are right there. They're holding you accountable. And I think it was a very helpful orientation to go into public service at the federal level to remember every single day why we're there, and that's to be of service. So clarify what your what your role was. I think you had you you, know, you kind of had a reputation as the as the Obama whisperer. So well, we, you know, yeah, where did the I ideas had... originate with you or with him or with both or how did it work? <laughs> so my responsibilities were as follows. I oversaw the relationship that the White House had with our nation's governors and mayors and county officials, every elected official in the in the country other than members of Congress. I also oversaw the Office of Public Engagement, and that's the gateway through which um, citizens can engage with their government, a range of constituency groups, everyone who wanted to come in and, and give us their views about proposed legislation, policies, everything. And then I chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls, which was the first council created by any president that had representatives from every agency in the federal government on it, and we looked at every program and legislation through a gender lens and asked ourselves, is this going to be helpful to women and girls? Now, part of the, one of the things that uh, I noticed the president did from time to time was read the mail. Do you remember any, any examples of when a letter or an email that some ordinary person wrote to the Oval Office and fell into your hands actually worked its way into policy somehow? Oh, absolutely. I have to tell you that 
we would we had a correspondence office that would that would go through thousands of uh, pieces of mail every day and send President Obama 10 letters, and the senior staff all had access to those letters. He read them. He uh, responded to many in handwritten notes back. And there was one woman in particular who a junior person on my staff discovered. Her name was Natoma Canfield. And she wrote a letter about having had cancer, and she went into remission, and her premiums went up because she had a pre-existing condition. And so she had she was not able to afford both her insurance and to pay the note on her mother's home. And she decided to look after her mother's home and let her insurance lapse. And lo and behold, of course, she got cancer again, came back. And so when you think about the Affordable Care Act, one of the most important components of it is prohibiting insurance companies from discriminating against people with pre-existing conditions. And it was people like Natoma Canfield who brought that issue to light, and her life story really became our rallying call to explain to people why it was so important to pass the Affordable Care Act. So from criminal justice reform to um, trying to make sure that the economy works for everybody and grew to encouraging uh, President Obama to just always keep his eye on the long view and, and, and focus on the American people, those letters inspired him every single day. So the Affordable Care Act, how does it feel to see it being dismantled little by little? Well, I worry about all of the families across America who will be adversely impacted by the steps. It's the first time in four years that we're seeing the uninsured rate go up. There are all of these threats to repeal it. If if it is repealed, one in two Americans has a pre-existing condition. And so what that will mean is is that your insurance companies can go back to jacking up your rates if you have it. And it could be asthma. It could be women who are of childbearing ages were paying higher premiums. It can be something more serious where you need your insurance the most. We got rid of insurance companies being able to have lifetime or annual caps. Uh, so, again, when you need your insurance the most, you want it to be available to you. Women who get preventive care young people who get to stay in their parents' plans, all those families are going to be impacted if it's repealed. And so uh, I think the only reason why it's still the law of the land is because people showed up at town halls the last couple of years and they mm-hmm. talk about what it means in their lives. And I'm hopeful that with that groundswell of support for the Affordable Care Act, Congress will not take uh, what I consider to be an ill-advised step of repealing it. But there were still considerable popular objections to it even before Trump happened on the scene, where people felt that, uh, I understand that the reason the premiums went up in some cases was because this was real insurance, not, you know, phony insurance, but still that's what people saw. People saw the price and decided that in some cases they were better off with the old system. Did you ever, did that surprise you? Well, look, uh, in most areas around the country where there's competition in the market, you can buy insurance for as low as $75 a month. That's a very important insurance policy because one trip to the emergency room could cost you thousands of dollars. Uh, so on balance, I think it, people, there are 20 million people who have health insurance today that didn't have it before the Affordable Care Act, as well as all of the benefits that go to the general population that I described. So on balance, I think it is a very positive. What did happen early on is, it turned into a political issue where the Republicans were opposing its passage, 
even though it was modeled after the Massachusetts health insurance plan under Governor Romney, a Republican. So it, it should have enjoyed bipartisan support. And it's a good example, I think, of where they put their short-term political interests ahead of what was good for the country. Uh, and I'm not to say it can't be improved upon. We, we have parts of our country where there isn't enough competition, and the rates are higher than we would want them to be. But let's solve those problems, not just take it away completely, when, after all these years, I have yet to hear of a plan that is better, that covers people with pre-existing conditions. And so I, don't, I think it's time now for the Republicans to lead and to say this is what we propose. And if it's better, then of course we would support it. But they've had a long time to come up with something, and they have not yet. Yes, and we know it's not going to happen until the next election, according to the president. Um, I, I want to move on to the, the State of the Union and, uh, and race relations. Uh, I guess it's Jared Kushner who now has your old office or your old role. And, the, of course, the change from Obama to Trump is, is, like, uh, is like whiplash. Why do you think a substantial number of voters uh, went in that direction? Because I get the I get the feeling in looking at some of the issues that seem to rise to the top, like immigration, that inclusivity has backfired for some people. There's just there's too much diversity going on, and basically every group is sacred except white men. Do you perceive that as a problem? Well, look, first of all, I think any time you disrupt the status quo, those who have a vested interest in it uh, resist. And President Obama did have a view and a vision for our country that was inclusive, that focused on what we have in common and not our differences. And under his leadership, in the midst of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, he cut the unemployment rate in half. That's a huge step in the right direction. Uh, but there is a certain toxicity in the air, and I think one of the, one of the uh, issues that I'm focusing on that's troubling to me that kind of gets to your question is that 43% of eligible Americans didn't even vote in the last presidential election. And so we can't read too much into the outcome other than there's a level of apathy and disengagement out there. So one of the organizations that I formed together with Mrs. Obama is called When We All Vote to try to change the culture around voting, to have people appreciate that elections have consequences and that they do need to research who's running and whether or not that person is going to be in office fighting for them. And I think we saw in the midterm elections there ha- example that there has been an awakening, that there is a level of activism and, engage- and an engagement out there that hasn't been um, as, as demonstrative in the last election. I think one of the things that, that discouraged a lot of voters was that nobody was punished for the in 2009 for the, uh, for the recession. And a lot of Democratic voters said, my gosh, if this president isn't going isn't to throw the book at them, who will? Was that a mistake? Should somebody have well, been – should those bankers uh, have been pursued? Well, first of all, when you say no one was punished, over $240 billion worth of fines were levied against the banks. And we passed sweeping legislation, Dodd-Frank, to keep banks from ever again taking risk with taxpayer dollars. And so I think we were very aggressive at, at bringing the ga- uh, banks um, uh, to, to be responsible for what they had done to our economy and to so many Americans who lost their jobs and lost their homes. Uh, now, did anyone go to prison? That's not the way the laws were written, but we certainly came after them for the fines that 
we felt that they owed the taxpayers uh, of the United States. And we now have rules of the road in place to keep that from ever happening again in the future. On immigration, uh, President Obama had his immigration crisis, and, and we seem to be having another one. How would, I mean, when you look at what's going on on the southern border now, how would you handle it? Well, the one thing I certainly wouldn't do is be separating children from their parents without any accountable system in place to reunite them. That's not reflective of our values and who we are as a country. We have laws that give people the ability to request asylum here in the United States. It's a very important value that our country has, and I think the rhetoric uh, that's really vilifying people who are seeking refuge from countries that are dangerous uh, isn't healthy for our country. One of our strategies is to try to work with the countries that uh, people are fleeing to make them safer and more welcoming of the residents so that they wouldn't be looking for refuge here. Uh, but I know one thing, the solution cannot be, inhum- cannot be inhumane. And right now what we're seeing, I believe, is inhumane, and it reflects poorly on our country, and it sends a very bad message around the world about what our values are. Well, I think there there has been bipartisan backlash to the separation, actually, because that goes against you know conservative family values, among other things. But there still is the reality of what was it ten thousand people uh, arriving in March, and some record number. I mean, you, you have people coming with their families who appear to be desperate, and I'm not saying they're criminals, but where do you put them? You've already got we already have the essentially refugee camps in some cities of homeless people who are from here. What do you do when you have that many people clamoring to get in, even if it's for a good reason? Well, first of all, our country can certainly absorb uh, more people than we are currently doing today. There are laws in place that give you, that set forth the process for requesting asylum. And we certainly have um, laws in place that keep, that are designed to keep people from coming over the border illegally. So there's a difference between those seeking asylum, which is legally permissible and those who are not. And what we proposed was a comprehensive solution to immigration reform more broadly. You would strengthen the border. You would make sure that those who are here who have paid their taxes and have gone right with the law have a path to citizenship and recognize that we have always been a nation of immigrants and a nation of laws and that you can do both. And I think trying to vilify people, women and children and parents who are just trying to get away from horrendous conditions, again, is inconsistent with who we are. I've been told by a number of people in in Washington that if you held a vote today, there would be a bipartisan vote in favor of the kind of immigration compromise that you describe. And yet, for some reason, that vote never comes. And can you explain that to me? You're right. And that is so unbelievably frustrating. And it's, this, it's not just the case for immigration. It's the same thing for uh, keeping guns out of the hands of people who are dangerous to themselves or to others. There is absolute um, support among the American people for something such as sensible background checks, yet Congress won't move forward. And it gets back to the earlier point that I was making to you about the stranglehold that those who are vested in the this, in this status quo have. And so organizations like the National Rifle Association, don't want to see any changes to our gun laws, even if it keeps America safer. And this false notion that uh, that background checks are somehow violating the Second Amendment is just not true. And I think what, we're, what we've seen in states like Florida, thanks to those young, amazing people from Parkland, 
is people beginning to put pressure on their legislatures to say, no, we want to be able to make sure that lethal weapons are, are used responsibly. But we need a national solution to that because obviously guns can move around and we have to continue to call on Congress to take those steps. But, but I mean, on immigration, again, I don't understand why if both sides uh, are prepared because immigration is, I don't know, there's no, there's no Second Amendment you know, argument there. The the nation we're a nation of immigrants. Uh, we've certainly seen in the in the terms of entrepreneurship the kind of energy that they bring to the country. We have a bipartisan majority. What 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 would it take if you were you know if you were working with Congress to at least bring it to a vote? Maybe the president would veto it, but at least bring it to a vote so he's forced to choose. Well, the only thing it would take is Leader McConnell in the Senate deciding to call it up for a vote. That's all it would take. One person mm-hmm. could make this happen, and yet he chooses not to. And I mean, it's kind of a lesson in democracy, which is that until there's enough pressure put on him to do so, it won't happen. And when he knows that he has the support of the president not to call it up, that's a recipe for the status quo. You bring up guns, and uh, so I want to talk about Chicago. You have deep roots in Chicago. Your, your, your old family does. Chicago has developed this stereotype as a violent, dangerous city. Is that fair? And uh, if it is, what would you do to change that? Well, you know what? Um, There are parts of Chicago that are certainly more dangerous than others. The crime rate generally is not um, that high, but there have been some very well-publicized examples of violence in the city. And for Families who are living in those neighborhoods where gun violence is running rampant, uh, it's terrible, and it's, it's, and it's an epidemic, and there has to be a comprehensive solution. Uh, one of the uh, roadmaps that we created while President Obama was in office was a task force on 21st century policing to try to improve the relationship, for example, between police and communities of color. But it isn't just an issue of the police. We have to make sure that our young people are in school, We have to ensure that they are getting a good education, that they have job opportunities in the summer that can change a young person's life to see what's possible for them and improve their overall quality of life. And that will reduce violence, not just gun violence, but violence in general. There are still too many people who are unemployed uh, in the Chicago, even though the economy generally is quite good. And so strategically, you have to make uh, policy decisions that create this fair shot for everybody. President Obama launched an initiative when he was in the White House that he continues now through his foundation called My Brother's Keeper, and that's designed to ensure that every young boy of color gets a fair shot as everybody else. And it's everything from mentorship to education to reforming our suspension and expulsion policies in our schools to reforming our criminal justice system. And I'm heartened to see, for example, that in the county, uh, they reformed the bail, the cash bail system so that young people are not, or not just young people, everybody is not wallowing away in jail simply because they can't afford bail. Imagine what happens to a working person if, uh, if you're in jail for 30 days. You lose your job. You can't make your payments on your home. You're separating families. There are some very specific steps that we could take that would improve the overall health of Chicago. And we have a new mayor, and mm-hmm. I'm optimistic that uh, she's going to try to move forward in the right direction. I'm going to be talking with uh, Alex Kotlowitz, who wrote the book, There Are No Children Here. He's got a new one about his experiences in, uh, in some of Chicago's more dangerous neighborhoods. And 
I mean, what he documents is a, a culture that does not trust the police, still does not trust the police, despite the the reforms. Uh, so what is what would it take then? Well, you have to build a bond of trust. And there are um, reasons why in communities of color there's a breakdown of that bond of trust, and it's a two-way street. And I remember when I first read um, Alex's book, uh, and it's focused on Henry Horner Homes and what it was like for the children who were growing up in Henry Horner Homes. And you have to bridge that gulf. Both the police and the residents deserve to go home safely every night. And, in, and evidence shows that where there is a bond of trust, communities are safer. There are communities not just in Chicago but around the country where people are afraid to come forward and talk to the police and cooperate with ongoing investigations because they don't think that there will be that there is a fairness and there isn't a trust in mm-hmm. that. You have to break that down. And I think community policing, which puts police on the streets, getting to know residents of the community where they see them not just when there's a problem, but when they are a part of the fabric of the community is one way of moving in the right direction. You, I mean, is it more black police? Is it more police from the neighborhood itself? Um, well, I, I don't think it's just the matter of the color. I think it's people, and I, don't even think, and I think it's great if they come from the neighborhood because then they have a step up. But I think it's people who go into the community trying to form a bond of trust. And look, it's hard to do. There are some neighborhoods where the police, I'm sure, are concerned about their livelihood and their their ability to um, to form that bond of trust. But you have to start somewhere. And I think the evidence that we collected on a national level shows that where you do develop the bond of trust, and it's and it's transparency invest- in investigations. We recommended body cameras, so it's not one person's word against another. For the cops who are doing their jobs well, a body camera protects them too. There are lots of steps that we could take to try to break down this level of mistrust. And and I'm confident that not just in Chicago, but around our country, uh, where there is a will to do this, we are seeing progress. And there have been great examples of community policing and data collection and transparency of distributing that data and a level of accountability that that helps solidify that bond of trust. One more thing. the uh, your, your book, Finding My Voice, has a, a number of uh, Remarkable scenes, and I, I think the one that sticks out in my mind is your trip to Saudi Arabia, and the uh, you know whereas most hotels give you a chocolate on your pillow, uh, <laughs> when you were visiting Saudi Arabia, you got your own villa. <laughs> yes, we had our own villa and an enormous suitcase full of jewels, which of course yeah. Tell we me about the suitcase. We're unable to keep. Mine had emerald and diamond rings and necklaces and pens and. I just, it, was, it was just a flash of jewels when I opened it, and it was a generous gift, obviously, from the government, but the policy that we have is, is that you're not able to accept gifts uh, from, our, well, any gifts, right, frankly, certainly not right. those from outside of the country. And this this was not cubic zirconium. This was the real. I think it was the real deal. It looked pretty real to me. I only, I only had it for a few minutes. I turned it right <laughs> into the State Department. You know, you don't want to be tempted. But um, no, in all seriousness, we we received lovely gifts as we traveled around the country and around the world. And it, the spirit of the gift was, I'm sure, meant well. But the policy is to, is to color well within the lines and not accept gifts, so that there's not even a hint or appearance of impartiality. Yeah. 
Finding My Voice, My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward by Valerie Jarrett. Valerie, delight to talk with you again, and thanks very much. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.